Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whether dealing with cultural or historical themes or emphasizing biblical languages, we talk a lot about historical context on the podcast. So let me be blunt. The popular notion that teachers should make the Bible relevant today or make the Bible relatable is absolutely wrong. It's not only wrong, it's unforgivable because when you engage in such nonsense, you shut your students out of the kingdom. In order to understand what someone is saying, you need to learn their language and understand their situation. You need to relate to them. This applies not just to history and language, but also to physical and geographic context. On the other hand, you could try to make the whole world relate to you, see everything and hear everyone from your perspective and filter everything through the lens of your thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Please, let us know how that works out for Western civilization. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 303 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have talked about the parable of the sower here in Matthew, but also in Mark. And if you recall, Richard, when we dealt with this issue in Mark, the question of the method of sowing came up. And there was some confusion because in Western farming, whether it be in the United States, in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, or in Europe, typically you have open stretches of land. I mean, it's very evident when you fly over the United States, the way in which we as an imperial power divvied up the land that belonged to the communities who shared it here in North America. We divvied it up in big squares. You can see it right from the airplane window. That was really only possible because of the geography. When you get to the Middle East, and this is something Father Paul pointed out in a conversation we had this past weekend, when you go to the Middle East or to a Near Eastern setting, you have hilly places, you have rocky places, you don't have big open stretches of land that are smooth and flat and easily plowable and plantable. You're dealing with a rugged and varying terrain. And that is important for understanding what's happening here in this parable. Right. Whereas we're used to, in this country, plowing the field, preparing the field, and then planting the seed. In the Middle East, you sow the seed, you throw the seed, and then you plow in order to 
plow the seed under, and that's the planting process. So a lot of the confusion that happens in understanding this parable is people think that it has to do with preparing the soil so that the seed can land, but that's not how it works. The seed comes first and it lands where it's going to land. And we'll see in this passage how Jesus deals with the type of soil that his seed falls upon, but it really is, as we've said multiple times, Father, it's about the seed and what the seed produces, what the seed brings, what the seed is, as opposed to the soil. So that keeps us, the listener, from being too puffed up when we think about receiving the seed. It's also about reaching as many different types of localities, types of soil, and therefore types of people, types of communities. We hit on this hard in the Gospel of Mark, and it's true here, that we are going out to soil that is unprepared and trying to reach as much soil as we can anywhere we find it, with as wide a variety of settings as possible, which is a very powerful metaphor because the writer is telling us that you are to spread the seed as much as possible in as many places as possible and you are running around like someone at a wedding feast throwing rice into the air well not into the air but you get the idea so it's important always to consider the geographic setting when you're hearing scripture you can't hear scripture as though it was written and proclaimed in the place where you are living in afghanistan is not the same as living in Vietnam is not the same as living in Wyoming, is not the same as living in the Sinai Desert. And if you ask anyone who's ever done a tour of duty in Afghanistan or Vietnam, they will tell you that the strategies and the tools that are used to enforce military strength don't work the same way in those countries, depending on the geography. You have to change strategies and sometimes weapons, and that's why none of the imperial powers have been able to manage Afghanistan. So geography counts. It counts for something, and it's interesting in that sense that the ground is so important in Genesis. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. I take issue with the translation in the New American Standard Bible. I would not have inserted the word one. Oftentimes when translators see the word poniros in the Greek, they immediately personalize it and want to start talking about the devil specifically or an evil spirit, most often the devil, and so then they say the evil one. But the way I hear it, Richard, is more in the spirit of the Psalter in the opening verses of that beautiful book in which we hear that the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked is blessed. So here we're talking about a road, seed that fell along the side of the road, and the wicked leads you astray. And insofar as the bird may represent the Roman Empire, it's the wicked teaching of the Gentiles. Could be the wicked teaching of anybody. I don't want to push that point too hard. But you're being led astray by the wicked, false teaching, 
incorrect behavior, you are walking in the counsel of the wicked. As one is walking in this counsel, I mean, what is counsel? Counsel is advice. Counsel is wisdom. Counsel is teaching. The problem that this runs into, the roadblock, is understanding. The one who hears it just simply doesn't understand. It just doesn't make sense, plain and simple. And it just bounces right off, whether it's bouncing off hard packed earth and road or a hard packed dense skull, it just bounces right off. There's no way for it to find a way in to the earth and it just gets devoured and disappears as if it was never sown in the first place. In this passage, Jesus doesn't talk about, you know, stupid road, stupid earth, and what did it know? It wasn't, no, it didn't grow. And then he moves on. The thing that's amazing about this passage is that Jesus is only concerned with the fruit. He's not concerned even with what's not producing fruit. It's just he wants fruit and that's it. Just like a farmer doesn't lament, oh no, this seed, this cute little seed, this wonderful little seed, I love this little seed with all my heart, and it's just not providing any fruit. I feel so bad about this seed. No, Jesus doesn't have time for this. He's like, okay, if it's not producing fruit, then I'm just not paying attention. Like any good farmer, farmers don't lament their seeds. They just rejoice when they get the increase of their crop and in the fruit. It's interesting also, Richard, this very important verb in verse 18, it is rendered akusate, and in verse 19, akuondos. In other words, we're hearing Jesus say, after having proclaimed the mashal, hear the mashal, hear and understand. It has that biblical prophetic call. Hear, meaning open your ears and hear what is being said, accept it, submit to it. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. There's a triptych emerging here of ways in which we don't hear and obey. But in the first example, we had someone being influenced by the counsel of the wicked. In the second example, the metaphor, of course, is of rocky terrain. So you imagine some earth in the wilderness, and there's an area where there's a lot of rocks. So there's either shallow soil or some of the rocks come up to the surface. But where there's shallow soil, the seed can't take root. It can't dig down that deep. And in this example, what pulls the person away from obedience to what has been proclaimed is the consequence of what has been proclaimed. So they like the message on the surface of it, but once they realize that there's an accountability, they will either suffer because of the teaching or endure persecution because of the teaching. So this is a fair-weather friend who, when the going gets tough, decides to join a different church. Yeah, this is exactly their fair-weather friend. We've seen so many of these people who do decide to go and join some other church or some other sect or some other religion or whatever it is. I mean, you get excited, you know, like first falling in love, but then once you're married for a while, you're like, this isn't everything I thought it was going to be. And then you leave. You have this excitement that comes at the beginning about hearing this word of the kingdom. But then once you see that this kingdom that's being proclaimed by this seed, by this word, does not appear in the same glory as the Roman Empire, the American Empire, the capitalist multinational empire, whatever. 
you see that the persecution and the tribulation that those who follow this teaching, this word, go through, that's the scandal. The scandal is that I thought this was going to be something powerful and good and glorious, and this is what I get from this? Are you kidding me? The implications are what scandalize the people. So at first we had just simple misunderstanding, like this word of the kingdom we just don't understand. Then the second one is we understand, and then, uh-oh, we understand all too well what this means, and then they get out. In the triptych that you outlined, those are the first two, is a lack of understanding and easily scandalized. And of course here, we shift gears into the problem of affluence, which is the third component of this metaphor. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This text falls in line beautifully, as always in Matthew, with the teachings outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, and here specifically the admonition earlier in this gospel that we are not to worry because our Heavenly Father provides for us. The example of Solomon was used and put down in comparison to the lilies of the field as a reminder that there's no garment that the human being can make. There's nothing that gold can buy that is of more value, more precious, or more beautiful than what God has wrought in the natural world. We are, after all, from the ground, like the lilies of the field. They're doing just fine, so why are we building a civilization, and why are we spinning fancy clothes? And here, those things, those manufactured cares, wealth is a concoction of the human ego. Those manufactured cares are the thorns, which is, I think of all three examples, no pun intended here, a very prickly metaphor <laughs> that you get ensnared, not in false teaching, you are undermined, not just by your cowardice in the face of persecution, but you are ensnared by your possessions. It's very powerful. And that brings together the triptych of these enemies of our faithfulness to the teaching. This triptych, I think, is really nice because we see that there are kind of two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, as we saw, what you thought was going to be this great, fantastic kingdom ends up being weaker than the earthly powers and therefore a scandal. But here we see not only that, the kingdom of this world seems better than the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. So the kingdom of Jesus looks weaker than the kingdom of this world. And second, the riches of this world actually seem pretty good. So they're complementary to each other. Not only have you not beaten them, now you want to join them. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It's the repetition of the accounting of the bounty. Because remember, we have no control over what bounty the seed produces. Maybe it's a hundredfold, maybe sixty, maybe thirty. That's not the purview of the soil in this story. 
all we are to do is to hear, which is to receive the soil, and to understand, which is to submit to what we hear, and it will do what it's going to do. Some 100, some 60, some 30. It's not up to the farmer. And, you know, another quote that Father Paul used this weekend in summarizing this parable, it's about roots and not about fruits. All the soil does is provide for the roots. God is the one who provides the fruits. And just as much as Jesus is not talking about the bad soil, he's only talking about the fruit. It is not up to the sower whether you get 100, 60, or 30. It's how much is produced in the end, and that even goes beyond the sower and the farmer. It's only up to God who provides for the increase. All you can do is understand, accept, and not be scandalized and not turn away, and you just have to stick with it. All of you who are listening to this, who have your questions about Scripture, who have your questions about the scandals that you hear about in Scripture, the scandals that you see in the world, whether it's the language that's used in Scripture against certain people that you perceive to be negative, or that you hear about evil that's happening in the world and it scandalizes your view of who God is, you have to stay with it, and you have to keep working and working working and working. Don't let yourself be scandalized. And instead of using your spare time to go and earn more money to get a nicer car or something very worldly, just keep spending your time on scripture, even when it is difficult. Just keep working and working so that the seed, the word of the kingdom can bear fruit. Once again, the sin against the Holy Spirit is central to the explanation of our condemnation, because in each example, whether it was a lack of understanding, or it was fear and cowardice, or simply a desire for nice things, in each example, it is choices that we make that prevent the teaching from doing its work for our sake. So each time you make a choice that prevents the seed from doing what the seed does, you are committing blasphemy against the throne of God. And how can God help you if you're blocking the seed? How can God help you if what you're doing is disrupting the seed? So this teaching is not a passing proverb in the Gospel of Matthew. Not at all. It actually makes one realize how high the stakes are. Because you drop a seed, it's already fragile. Even if it lands on, quote, good soil, there's so much that could prevent the seed from doing what it does. And each time you prevent the seed, that's a moment lost, an opportunity blocked that works against the kingdom. So we have to take these things seriously and make the effort because each opportunity is a keros in the Bible where you can block the seed or allow the seed to do its work. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. heard the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network